Good morning. I'm Wendy Irwin. Our scripture today is Exodus chapter 40, verses 1 to 38. A reading from the Exodus. The Lord spoke to Moses. On the first day of the first month, you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. You shall put it in the ark of the covenant, and you shall screen the ark with a curtain. You shall bring in the table and arrange its setting, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. You shall put the golden altar for incense before the Ark of the Covenant and shut up the screen for the entrance of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. You shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle so that all is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it shall become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar shall be most holy. You shall also anoint the basin with its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron his sacred vestments, and you shall anoint him and consecrate him so that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put tunics on them and anoint them as you have anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests, and their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout the generations to come. Moses did everything just as the Lord had commanded him. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was set up. Moses set up the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the covenant and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the curtain for screening and screened the ark of the covenant as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the curtain, and set the bread in order on it before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the curtain and offered fragrant incense on it as the Lord 
had commanded Moses. He also put in place the screen for the entrance of the tabernacle. He set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set up the court around the tabernacle and the altar and put up the screen at the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the Israelites would set out on each stage of their journey. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, before the eyes of all the house of Israel at each stage of their journey. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. morning. I wonder how many of you found the scripture reading this morning, not to too, put too fine a point on it, to be somewhat tedious. It talks about Moses setting up the tabernacle, a more elaborate structure than what was previously called the tent of meeting and a structure that would be replaced some hundreds of years later by the temple in Jerusalem. We read of the bases and the frames and the poles and the pillars and the tent to go over the tabernacle and the ark with the covenant inside and the poles for carrying the ark and the mercy seat above the ark and the curtain used as a screen for the ark and the table for the bread of the presence to be placed on the north side of the tabernacle outside the curtain and the lampstand to be placed on the south side opposite the table and the golden altar for incense and the altar of burnt offering with its utensils at the entrance to the tabernacle for burnt offerings and for grain offerings and the basin for washing one's hands and one's feet so many details. But in fact, this is only scratching the surface. If we went back to chapter 35 in Exodus, we begin six chapters of description of the building of the tabernacle. 
So this morning's reading could have been all of chapters 35 to 40. But that's still not all there is. From chapters 25 to 31, we find Moses on Mount Sinai receiving the detailed instructions from God about how to build the tabernacle and everything that goes in it. That is, almost one-third of the book of Exodus has to do with the tabernacle. Apparently, the writer of this book did not find this material to be tedious. Clearly, he thought it was pretty important stuff. But what is the point of all of this? We can begin with this. At the very least, this extended attention to the detail of the tabernacle indicates the importance of worship. In particular, it shows that the purpose of liberation from slavery in Egypt was for worship. Indeed, it is significant that the book of Exodus begins and ends with building projects. At the beginning, the Israelites are in Egypt in hard service, building Pharaoh's supply cities. And at the end, they are at the foot of Mount Sinai building the Lord's tabernacle. There's something instructive here about the nature of freedom. The idea that freedom is a state where we can do whatever we want to do is not what we find in Scripture. The Israelites were freed from servitude to Pharaoh precisely so that they could serve the Lord. I think Bob Dylan probably got it right when he said, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. So the importance of worship. But we can go further than this. The tabernacle, by its very nature, was a physical expression of God's presence in the community. From occasional encounters at burning bushes and on the mountain and the makeshift tent of meeting, God is now committing himself to residing with his people. The book of Exodus ends by telling us that the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. But interestingly, it is not a permanent structure. The tabernacle is a movable thing, a kind of portable Mount Sinai. God is committing himself to the community, but God will not be confined to one specific location. Even when the temple gets built in Jerusalem many years later, the poles used for carrying the ark 
are still left attached to the ark. And in fact, they stick out through the protective curtain, reminding people that Yahweh is a mobile God. Here, the metaphors of journey and divine guidance seem to be most appropriate for the life of faith. But as we recall from a couple weeks ago, while Moses is on the mountain receiving instructions for building the tabernacle, Israel is down below committing apostasy with the construction of a golden calf. They come to Aaron and say, come, make gods for us who shall go before us. And so when we come to this part of the story, we are forced to ask, will the tabernacle still be built? Will God dwell among his people after all, as he had told Moses that he would? Or will Israel's sin keep him away? This is no small matter. Indeed, there's some serious intervening that Moses has to do to prevent God from destroying the Israelites. But Moses does, and God relents. Now, what is interesting in the narrative is how the building of the golden calf and the building of the tabernacle are starkly contrasted. Consider, for example, the tabernacle was built at God's initiative, whereas the golden calf was at the initiative of the people. If we went back to chapter 25, we would note that the people willingly offered more than enough materials for the building of the tabernacle, whereas Aaron had to command people to bring gold for building the golden calf. And finally, the construction of the tabernacle required painstaking preparations and involved a lengthy process whereas there was no planning for the building of the golden calf, and it was made quickly. The construction of the tabernacle contrasts with the building of the golden calf at every point, suggesting that the tabernacle is what will fight against idolatry in Israel. Proper worship helps to keep us in line. Of course, it is not an, an automatic assurance that things won't go sour in the future. There will come a time when Israelites regard the temple, the successor to the tabernacle, as a kind of automatic guarantee that God would always support and defend them no matter what they were doing and how they were living. A problem that, for example, the prophet Jeremiah would have to address. but that would ultimately result in exile. But even after the Jerusalem temple 
has been destroyed and the Israelites are away in exile in Babylon for their breaking of the covenant with God. The book of Exodus still speaks to them of God's intention to dwell in the midst of his people, even knowing their tendency to disobey. The theme of God dwelling among his people is picked up in the New Testament. John introduces Jesus with these words, And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son. A precise translation into English with all of John's nuance is probably not possible. When John says he lived among us, he uses an unusual word. He uses a verb form of the word tabernacle, as if tabernacle were a verb. I tabernacle, you tabernacle, he, she tabernacles. Literally, it would read, he tabernacled among us. John presents Jesus as the tabernacling presence of God on earth, the locus of the glory of God. A further expression of God's intention to dwell with his people. But we can go further still. There are clear connections between the description of the building of the tabernacle and the account of creation in Genesis 1. Consider, for example, the following. You may recall at the beginning of Genesis 1, we read that the Spirit of God was moving over the earth. And in Exodus, we read of the craftsman Bezalel being put in charge of the construction of the, ta of the tabernacle, of whom it was said that he was filled with the Spirit of God. In fact, he is the only person in the Old Testament who is said to be filled with the Spirit of God. Think again, in chapters 25 to 31, there are seven speeches of God concerning the tabernacle, corresponding to seven days of creation. Both God's description of the tabernacle to Moses and the account end with a concern for the keeping of Sabbath. corresponding to the creation being carried out by God's word and God said and the observation after each day of creation that it was good and indeed at the end that it was very good. We are told that Moses completed the tabernacle exactly as God had said. In fact, we are told this 18 times just in case we hadn't got the point after 17. 
and the goodness of the structure is indicated by the glory of the Lord filling it. And finally, when the work on the tabernacle was finished, Moses blesses the Israelites, corresponding to God blessing the man and the woman at the climax of creation. What this all leads to is a kind of two-way metaphor. Read in one direction, we are invited to see the tabernacle as a reflection of creation. Indeed, as a microcosm of creation. One enters the tabernacle and one finds a world rightly ordered with God filling the structure. But read in the other direction, we are invited to see creation as a tabernacle, as a place where God dwells. It's a vision of the world where, in fact, there is no secular space. There may be places like the tabernacle in it, where his presence is intensified and seen more clearly, but God actually fills the universe. As the prophet Isaiah would say, the glory of the Lord is, uh, sorry, the whole earth is full of the glory of the Lord. And so God coming to dwell in a tabernacle within the community of Israel is a statement of creation. Indeed, a statement of creation being restored. This is part of God's program of bringing creation back to how it was intended to be. It's no wonder that centuries later, when prophets looked forward to a return of the exiles who had been taken away into Babylon, a return that would be like a second exodus, they used language of new creation. Hear these words of Isaiah. For the Lord will comfort Zion and he will comfort all her waste places and will make her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and a voice of song. This focus on creation gets picked up also in the New Testament. When Jesus, for example, opens the eyes of the blind, and when the Apostle Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. We recall from a few weeks ago God's intention that Israel was to be a priestly kingdom, an intermediary between God and her neighboring nations an instrument by which the blessing God had promised to Abraham would extend to all the nations of the world. This helps us to appreciate the point of liberation and the purpose of all the legislation in the book of Exodus. These are intended to lead towards new creation. 
And so we come to the end of the book of Exodus, only to discover that Exodus is only part of the story. It's not only about getting out of Egypt, but also about the beginning of a new life in the wilderness. Now a life with God in their midst. Israel would continue to look back at the Exodus as its point of liberation, its foundation as a nation. But it was a liberation to a particular kind of life, one shaped by the laws God gave on Mount Sinai, but also one shaped by a new experience of the ongoing presence of God. We come to church each week in order to see more clearly what at times is difficult to see in the world, namely the presence of God, the reign of Christ. This morning we are being invited and reminded of something at the core of the Christian faith. Our faith is more than a philosophy that gives us intellectual satisfaction of how the world works. It's more than a list of rules that upon obeying secures us a place in the world to come. Rather, building on the entire story of the book of Exodus, we are being invited to experience liberation from the powers of evil, a liberation that is entirely an act of God's grace now made available through Jesus Christ. But more than that, we are being invited to experience this liberation within an ordered life that is based on the love of God and the love of our neighbors. An ordered life that is more than just being nice, but rather is about caring for creation, extending the radical welcome of Jesus to our neighbor, speaking up for peace and justice, etc. But more than that, we are being invited this morning to worship. Invited to a place where we experience the reality of the Creator God in our midst. One who wants to commune with us with all the love and holiness and mystery that that entails. Amen.
Lordy, that's one of my favorites. 